If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to open with me to the book of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 14, and we'll pick up in verse 25, and read down to the end of the chapter, Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. And today we're going to look at the high cost of discipleship. The high cost of discipleship. Now, in the 21st century American church and Christianity as a whole, I think, everywhere, but especially here in America, uh, there's been such an emphasis to, uh, on, on trying to make the gospel more palatable to people, make it more acceptable to the masses. And, and I think there's, there's been kind of a downplaying of what Christ actually requires and, and, uh, and, and wants from us as Christians. And I think part of, part of this trying to make it more palatable, I think part of it is uh, it's done from good motives because we want to remove every obstacle that people have um, that, 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 to keep them from coming to Christ. But in doing so, I think sometimes uh, folks have kind of gone astray of what Jesus actually teaches and, and, uh, and calls us to and, and what he demands as, uh, as a matter of fact. And so today is one of those passages that really uh, it's impossible to get around what he's saying. And so uh, it doesn't require a lot, of, a lot of introduction, a lot of setup. So go ahead and stand with me if you're able to. In honor of God's word, we'll pick up in verse 25. And Jesus lays out exactly what it takes to be his disciple. It says in verse 25, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry, on, uh, carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe, be, who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 men? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple, who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thank you. You may be seated. Now this is one of those uh, difficult texts. It's, it's not difficult to understand, but it is difficult to live. And uh, I, just, I just want you to pick up in verse 25 and look with me. As, uh, as you see this, and it really breaks down into, into four main sections or four main headings. The first is in verses 25 and 26, and that is that Jesus tells us to love him more than anyone else. Love him more than anyone else. If you look at verse 25, you'll see that he was, he was traveling and some crowds were around him. Remember where we are in, in, in Luke's gospel. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's been at a Pharisee's house at, at, a, at a banquet that this man's giving. And he taught several times about, uh, about humility and about the kingdom of God and, and different things like that. But now he's left the Pharisee's house and he's going back to Jerusalem. He's traveling that way. And you remember, of course, the reason he's going, we know, is because he's, he's going there to die on the cross. But big picture, he's going to celebrate the Passover. This was the reason that he was going. He was going to celebrate the Passover, as were many other people. You remember, that's why there were so many crowds and so many people at the triumphal entry, because people were going, they were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so as he was going, it says there were large crowds were following him. 
Most likely, many of them came from the surrounding towns and villages where he had been teaching and preaching and doing these miracles, but many of them are probably pilgrims heading towards Jerusalem as well. Now, if you, if you travel down the interstate, and I know you have, uh, you know that sometimes the traffic doesn't flow steadily, does it? I mean, there will be spots where there's nobody, and then all of a sudden you get a big clump of people. And it, I mean, we always blame it on the semis, and they are a big part of it. But, uh, you know, when they, they get in the left lane, they go one mile an hour faster than the other guy, or the same speed, and, and traffic just backs up. But it happens whether there are semis or not. I mean, there, there are just going to be clumps of people as people are moving at different speeds. And, and so it's likely that as Jesus is going along, people have kind of clumped up around him as he's traveling. And he's teaching, and, and he's, he's preaching as he's going. And, and people are, are slowing down. If maybe they're going a little faster than them, they're slowing down to hear what this man has to say. And so this great crowd is surrounding him as he's traveling to Jerusalem. And he turns and he speaks to them. And I want you to notice he is, he's saying this to the whole crowd. Now, from the outside looking in, it would have looked like Jesus was having great success. Because here are all these people, hundreds, possibly thousands of people, were surrounding him. They were listening to him. But let me tell you, being part of the crowd doesn't mean, you're, doesn't mean you're a follower of Christ. Being part of the crowd doesn't mean you're a follower of Christ. Coming to church doesn't mean you're a follower of Christ. Teaching or being in Sunday school doesn't mean that you're a follower of Christ. Jesus calls people to a certain way of life. He calls people to live in, in a way where he is number one. See, see, being come to church and being a Christian, the one does not necessitate the other. So Jesus gives a difficult teaching, and I'm sure it kind of thinned the herd just a little bit. As people heard this, many of them probably said, well, this man's telling me I need to love him more than I love mom. I'm out. See, uh, you know, because mom's number one, dad's number one. And so, so Jesus gives this difficult teaching. And look at verse 26. Many people get hung up on this teaching. Jesus says, Anyone who comes to him must hate his father or mother or wife or children or brothers or sisters or even his own life. Now, what is he talking about? What does he mean by saying that you need to hate your family? Hate the ones that are closest to you. Hate even the, the person that brought you into this world. What is he saying? What does he mean? Well, Jesus, remember, was a, a, a Jewish man. And he was using a Hebrew idiom. He was using a Hebrew figure of speech when he was saying that, uh, that, that we must hate our, our, even those who are closest to us. He is saying that, that that idiom means to love less than. To love less than. Now, this is not just me trying to, to, uh, to soften the words of Jesus this is, this is well attested. It's, it even shows up in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 29 and verses 30 and 31, you remember Jacob, he was kind of the trickster of the family, and he saw a woman named Rachel, and boy, she was good looking. You remember that? And he wanted to marry her, and he worked for Laban for seven years. Come wedding night, everything was grand. They had him a, a big ceremony. Next morning, lo and behold, the trickster had gotten tricked, and he got the ugly sister. He got Leah. And so then he worked seven more years for Laban and, and, and Rachel got Rachel as a wife. And so he was married to two sisters. Talk about a nightmare. I mean, that is, that is a recipe for disaster. And so he, he always favored Rachel. He loved her more than Leah. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 31. And I want you to listen to the wording that's used. It says, Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed... He loved Rachel more than Leah. So there's that, that idea. And he served, uh, served with Laban for another seven years. 
Now the, Lord, now the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Verse 29, she was loved more than, or Leah was loved less than Rachel. Verse 30, she was hated. It's, this, it's the exact same setup that we have here. Je, uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Likewise, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters for what? He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Jesus is not saying, break the commandment to honor your father and mother. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that you need to love him more than even your closest relatives, even more than your kids, your grandkids, even more than your life itself. He says, you should put me first. That is, that is the epitome of discipleship. Even your closest family ties come in second after Jesus. Now notice this is not just a call to preachers. Notice verse 26 doesn't say if preachers come to me or missionaries. This is a call to not just the twelve. Who does he say in verse 26 this applies to? Anyone. Anyone who comes to me. This is a call for, uh, for, for every disciple you must put Jesus first. Love him more than even your own life. Love him more than anyone or anything. That's pretty high cost. But then he moves on to talk about the cost of discipleship. And he uses two pictures that are, that are pretty much synonymous. And we can't press the details too much because they, they both paint the same picture. And that is we need to count the cost. But I do think there's a little, little distinction between the two. And, and I think... I think the emphasis is a little bit different, enough to, to warrant some, some, uh, some attention. First, he says, to count the cost of discipleship. And, and the picture that he uses is that of a man who decides to build a tower. He's, he's starting a building project, and he goes out and just starts building, and he doesn't look at his bank account first. He doesn't look at his checking account. He doesn't say, you know what, maybe I need to save up for a couple more months and, and get, get a little nest egg built up so I can have enough to finish this. He just takes it on a whim one day. He's going to build this tower, and he goes out and starts building, but he only has enough to lay the foundation. Today we don't build towers, but when you think about building a house, think about building a barn, and, and not looking at your bank account, not talking to your spouse and saying, hey, you think we can swing that if, if we kept back here and, and, and maybe trim out this here over here. You think we maybe store up enough to get it? You think we, we have enough in savings for this? No, instead this would be calling up the, the concrete company saying, hey, I need to come out and pour some footings. Hey, Lowe's, Home Depot, whoever it is, I need to come out and deliver some lumber. Well, how are you going to pay for it? Now just send me the invoice. I'll take care of it later. And then all of a sudden you get the bill and you start looking at your, at your accounts and all of a sudden you realize the money's running out and you can't, and you can't finish. All you've done is laid a foundation. All you've done is put up stud walls. And the people who would see this, they would look at you and they would mock. Say, you hear about old Jeff? He said he's going to be building him a, a new house and look at it. All he's got is a foundation. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be sleep. I don't think he's going to be too warm staying in that tonight. <laughs> that old idiot. You know, and, and people will be making fun of you. And that's what Jesus is saying. If we, if we decide that we're going to be a disciple of Christ, we, we tell everybody, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. No turning back. 
We need to count the cost. Otherwise, we're going to look like fools whenever, if, if we don't have enough to stay with it. Now, Jesus could have actually had a, an historical event that happened not too long before this. He could have had that in mind whenever he said these words. Because in 27 AD, the emperor of Rome had outlawed the gladiatorial games. But in 27 AD, he reinstituted them. And there was a man who wanted to capitalize on this, and so he built an amphitheater. And we think about an amphitheater, we think of the Colosseum, right? This grand stone structure. He didn't do that. He built his out of wood. And he cut corners. It was a rush job. He didn't lay the foundation on their bedrock and all, all sorts of things. And so he, he built this huge amphitheater. And on the first time, it's kind of like the Titanic. You know, the first, it was supposed to be unsinkable. It went out on the first thing. The only thing it did was sink. It was kind of like that. Here's this, here's this Colosseum, this amphitheater that was built. And on the very first time they had the gladiatorial games, all these people, they, they liked to see all the blood and gore. And so all these people showed up to see it. And when they got there, it all collapsed. And 20,000 people, history tells us, some 20,000 people died, and an estimated 50,000 were either killed or maimed or injured total. That happened not too long before he said this. So it could have been that he's thinking of something like that. But regardless of whether he has that in mind or not, he says you need to consider the cost. You need to count the cost. But he doesn't just say to count the cost. Well... You say, well, what, what, does, what does discipleship cost? I mean, obviously, it's not money, because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't specify some dollar amount. But, but this cost is going to be things like popularity. It's going to cost you to not get invited to certain functions. Have you ever been in maybe the workplace, and all these people decide, hey, we're going to go out drinking, and they invite everybody in the office except for you. And you say, why in the world? Didn't she invite me? That hurts my feelings. Well, would you have gone? No. Well, then why are you upset about? But I mean, there are some things that the people will 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 not will not invite you to certain functions. You know, maybe maybe everybody's going to get together and do this or that, and they don't invite you because they know if you have a consistent witness, you're not going to take part in that. That's not fun to be left out, but that's the way it is sometimes. It may cause you to not be part of the in crowd. It may cause you to, it'll cause you to have integrity in the workplace and that may cost you a promotion. Discipleship is going to cost you something. In fact, it'll, it'll cost you everything. It may even result in strained or broken relationships with those who are closest to you, even in your own family. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I, I came to bring the sword. Man against uh, father and mother against daughter and, and so forth. Now notice verse 27. And again, he, he puts it in stark, absolute terms. He says, verse 27, Whoever, again, anybody, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now these things, like carrying the cross, uh, loving him the most, those are not incidental to following Christ. They are essential to following Christ. He says, anyone who would come after him must take up his own cross and follow him. And notice how personal this is, verse 27. Who does not carry his own cross? Every Christian has a cross. And, it, and they're all different. But it's yours. And we've romanticized the cross because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because of what he, his death on the cross provided. But listen, the cross was a death sentence 
And Jesus is encouraging us, he's calling us to follow him on a death march, to walk the same path as him, to follow him to die. Die to sin. Die to self. Die to self-centeredness. The Bible talks about crucifying our flesh. Take up our cross daily, the Bible says, and follow him. If you do not do that, verse 27, he cannot be my disciple. Next he says to consider the peril of discipleship. And he talks about this time in the the image of a king. This is not a tower builder. This is a king who goes out and there's another king coming against him. And and King A has 10,000 soldiers. King B has 20,000. Those are not great odds if you're King A. Two to one. You're outnumbered. It's dangerous. There's peril. And before embarking on that journey, the wise king will sit down and consider. He'll be deliberate and he will resolve. Do I have what it takes to overcome this king? Do I have what it takes to overcome these odds, to face this peril? And likewise, Christian, you are outnumbered. You're outnumbered. Sometimes, have you ever felt like this? You worked in a place and you feel like you're the only Christian in the department, the only Christian in the office, the only Christian maybe in the whole company? Listen, if nothing else, you have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you have everybody that's aligned with those worldviews, those, those thought patterns, those lifestyles and behaviors. All those people are not on your side. And if you're going to walk with the Lord, if you, you first need to consider if it's worth it. Do you have enough to go through with it? Because you will be, you will be swimming against the stream, and so you need to first consider, but then you need to resolve to do it. As Adrian Rogers pointed out, you know, once, once you were in collusion with the world, but after you get saved, you're in collision with the world. Once you're going with the stream, going with the flow, and after you get saved, you're going against the flow. And the point of both of these pictures is, is the same. It's not to count the cost and then decide the cost is too high. And so then not follow Jesus. The point of this is to say, yes, this is a high cost, but Jesus is worth it. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to do. It's not to turn away from him. It's, it's, it's to say he is worth it and then resolve to follow through on that. His goal is for you and me as followers of Christ to be followers of Christ. To put him first. To love him above anyone and anything else. And to stay true to him even if difficulties come. Even when the pressures mount. Even when there's a temptation to fall away. We need to make up our mind beforehand that even if that comes, we're not going to turn back. We're not going to turn our back on God. And then he gives kind of a, a, a difficult uh, statement in verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now he's not saying that you have to become propertyless when you become a Christian. But you think about the, the, uh, the, the early church in the book of Acts. What did they do? Well, people had traveled to Jerusalem. They had gotten converted. And they were traveling because they were there for the Passover. They had gotten converted. It became part of the early church, you know, Pentecost and all those things. And as they stayed there and listened to the teachings of, of, of the apostles, well, they didn't bring enough provision for an extended stay. And so the, the early church began to sell what they had and provide for those people. And, and what that is, is they were holding what they had loosely. Our, our possessions, our relationships, hold those things loosely. And, and, and this, this idea of, 
of surrender, if, if you've given it up beforehand, if, if you've given it up mentally, then when it comes time to give it up, if, if that is needed, half the battle has already been done. And when you think about it, if we, if we let go of those things, if we hold on to them loosely, what power does the world have over us? Because what is the world going to say? If you don't do what we want, we'll kill you. Great, we get to go to heaven. If you don't do what we say, we'll take your possessions, whatever it is. If we've already surrendered it to God, they have no power over us. Finally, in verse, uh, the, the last few verses, verses 34 and 35, Jesus closes out with another word picture that, that seems to come out of the blue, really. And my summation is, he says, stay salty. Stay salty. Now, we're familiar with this, this teaching, this, this terminology, you know, light on the hill, uh, salt of the earth, things of that nature. And so when we read this, our mind immediately jumps to the Sermon on the Mount. And so when it comes in here, it kind of throws us off, but number one, because it's a different context, but number two, because it seems almost unrelated to what he's just gotten through saying. But he's, he tells us to stay salty. Now, he's not using it the way that we often use the word salty. I mean, when I grew up, if somebody was salty, they're kind of rough, rough around the edges. If, if, if you mess with them, you might, you might uh, get popped in the nose. I mean, that, that's a salty person. That's not what he's talking about. By and large, and, and today, I mean, we think about salt. Salt never loses its saltiness, right? I mean, you, you can find a... A can of Morton salt's been up in the pantry for 50 years, and you get it out, it still tastes like salt. Well, what they had was not Morton salt. It was not pure. They had, like, salt marshes where all this water would come in, and it was kind of a shallow area. And then when that, that water would evaporate, it would leave behind all those impurities that had washed out in the water. And so it would be salty, but it would lose that saltiness after a while. And so you think about it, and what Jesus is saying, if if... Some meat, for instance, is kind of tasteless. You can put some salt on it, and it helps it out. But if salt doesn't have any taste, what are you going to put on it to make it salty? You can't put anything on it. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying that, that the salt that's lost its saltiness is worthless. It's useless. And likewise, the person who professes to follow Christ, but then they don't live out that discipleship he's just gone through talk to, talking about, is like this salt that's not salty. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make a difference in the world. There's no savor. There's no, uh, no preservative qualities to it. Their lives aren't different from the world's. They don't stand up. They don't stand out. They don't take a stand for anything. They just go with the flow. And that person, Jesus says, is not being a true disciple. They're unsalty salt. So we need to stay salty. We need to stay true to him. Now, that's a hard message because Jesus calls us to something that is not natural and it's not easy. It involves putting him before everybody else in this world. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, even your own life. Choose him over them. Choose him over you. And I just wonder, as a Christian today, have you counted the cost of following Christ? Have you considered what it's going to cost you if you stay true to Him 
in your family? Have you considered the cost of what, it's got, what it may cost you if you stay true to him in your workplace? Is he worth it to you? Because, again, the point of this isn't to say the cost is too high, buy. The, co- the, the purpose of this is to say the cost is high, but you're worth it. And if you've, if you've never done that, maybe you need to be deliberate and consider and then resolve to follow Christ no matter what. And it could be that, that you're here and, and you're not a Christian. I'm not going to soft pedal things. I'm not going to read you what Jesus said and then tell you what I say and it's a lot easier. I'll tell you what Jesus said. If you follow Christ, it's going to cost you everything. Jesus is not an appendix to your life. He doesn't expect you to, to, uh, uh, to, to, take a, uh, to, to treat him like a, a take it or leave it kind of Lord. Yes, the cost is high. But with Jesus, you find rest for your soul. You find forgiveness for your sin. If you'll cast yourself on his mercy, you'll find him a perfect Savior. I want you to stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, as you bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I just encourage you to, um, to consider what Jesus has called each of us as Christians to, to, to do. The way he's called us to live. Is Jesus number one in your life? Are your friends number one? Is your family number one? Is your job, our, our sports, or any of these other things, possessions, money, property? What is number one in your life? We've seen the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Have you decided to follow him? Will you, if you've never followed him in salvation, would you follow him today? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not done a bait and switch and promised us all the good stuff ahead of time and then hit us with all the bad stuff or the difficult stuff rather uh, after we've decided to follow you but you tell us right out in front that yes the cost is high but Christ is worth it and God I ask you to help each of us today to not turn back from you but to hang on to you for dear life and to see you as being worth it. And God, that person maybe who's hearing me today is also hearing the Spirit speak to them and tell them that they are a sinner in need of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and yes, let them count the cost but again, see you as being worth it. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.